Well, brothers and sisters, we are back in Daniel chapter 2 today. Uh, in particular, we are looking at the passage that I have looked forward to this whole time. Perhaps if there was one passage which made me not only want to preach the book of Daniel, but look forward to preaching it, it was probably what we're going to be covering today. We saw last week in the first half of chapter 2, God confounding, showing, showing to be folly the wisdom and power of the wise men of Babylon as he sends King Nebuchadnezzar a dream which they neither know nor can interpret. We considered the great irony of this, given that Nebuchadnezzar's name means me Nabu, the god Nabu protect my heir. Nabu is the, the patron god of wisdom and literature and even prophecy. It's related, his name is related to the Hebrew word Navi, which is, means an oracle or a prophet. Surely if there is a god in heaven who, whom Nebuchadnezzar could call upon to interpret his dream, it would be Nabu. Surely if there was a god that the wise men could appeal to, it would be their own patron god. And yet we saw that Nabu is silent because he's not actually God. In a rage then, because his heart had been so troubled by the dream in the first place, and because his wise men could not actually do the very thing they're supposed to do, Nebuchadnezzar orders to have them all killed. And he sends out Arioch, the captain of his guard, to do so. And we saw that here Daniel steps into action. He prudently goes in and asks for time from the king. He says he will interpret the, de- the dream, give me time. He returns back to his companions informs them, and they all pray with big faith. Uh, And God, in fact, does reveal the dream. You thought you had a a stressful boss to deal with. You thought you had to pray for big things. Uh, Daniel and his companions pray, and God reveals it. And so we closed last week with Daniel's praising God, this beautiful prayer of thanksgiving, this doxology. He says in verse 20, "'Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever.'" For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. Well, I remind you of all those things, not just to bring you up to speed in terms of context of the passage today, but also because as I studied this passage, I don't really think we get away from the themes that you see in the beginning of the chapter. Um, I think on the one hand, the, the lens changes, if you will, will kind of look at these themes anew now from the lens of kingdom, but in terms of God magnifying and manifesting his glory and power and wisdom against the backdrop of the folly, the weaklessness, or weakness, powerlessness, weakness, shame and foolishness of the world, that's still what we see moving on, which makes sense since it's all in the same one chapter. So the lens is new. We're looking through the lens of kingdom. We still very much see the wisdom and power of God. With that in mind, let's turn to our text now. We have a lot to cover. 
If you are a note taker, I have three headings for you. These really only apply to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, though. So if you're like, when do, these, when do we start going through these? We'll get through them eventually. Um, but they are these three. First, the fleshly wisdom and power of the kingdoms of man. The fleshly wisdom and power of the kingdoms of man. Second, the apparent folly and weakness of Yahweh's kingdom from the perspective of the flesh. It's a long heading. The apparent folly and weakness of Yahweh's kingdom from the perspective of the flesh. And third and lastly, the spiritual wisdom and power of Yahweh's kingdom. Spiritual wisdom and power of Yahweh's kingdom. Well, let's begin. Let's pick up in verse 24. Daniel has just uh, received the revelation from God. He has praised the Lord, but then he springs into action because the the king is waiting. And uh, if he doesn't get his answer, bad things are going to happen. So he goes, verse 24, it says, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions of your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Note just briefly the great humility of Daniel. On the one hand, he takes zero credit for the revelation he has been given and which he is about to share. Notice kind of the contrast there between him and Arioch, the captain of the guard. What does he say? I have found a man. Look at me, king. Look what I did. Well, you didn't find anyone. Daniel came to you, right? Daniel does nothing like that. In fact, perhaps to gain mercy for the wise men, he kind of puts himself in the same category as those wise men. They're all just men. It's not the prerogative or the ability of men to know these things. It's purely from God. No credit to himself, all credit to the Lord. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. 
First, this is a statue that it says is of extraordinary splendor. Splendor. The NIV says it's dazzling, it's beautiful to behold, and surely if we saw a statue made up of all these precious materials, we would find it to be very bright as well. Secondly, however, it is terrifying to behold. The NASB says its appearance was awesome, but the word is connected to fear. I kind of rather prefer the ESV's translation, which says its appearance was frightening. And this makes sense why it, it, it disturbed Nebuchadnezzar so much, why it was so urgent. Something about this thing was terrifying to behold, as beautiful as it was. Verse 32. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. Verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the air... He has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. One thing to note here, uh, as one commentator puts it, there's a great deal of fluidity between king and kingdom and even the people of that kingdom. Okay, This will become important later, particularly as we we consider the kingdom of, of the Lord. But here we see it is Nebuchadnezzar himself who is said to be the head of gold. However, it's very clear that each of these sections of this statue represents a kingdom, okay? Not just a king. And so, for example, in verse 39, Daniel says, After you, there will arise another kingdom. So is it Nebuchadnezzar? Is it the Babylonian Empire? Is it the people of Babylon? Yes, it's all of these things together, and that's something important to keep in mind. Verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. First thing to note here, which is important, is that every successive kingdom is inferior to the one that it follows. This is expressed in the dream by a progression from metals that are more valuable to those that are less valuable, okay? So the golden head is followed by the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, so on and so forth. Now, how exactly these kingdoms are inferior to the one that went before them? To be quite honest with you, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I know you guys pay me, but uh, that's all you're getting for your money this week. I've tried to find something there. 
Um, I can only give you some, some speculations as to what it is, but uh, keep that with an open hand, okay? Some, like Andrew Willett, Franciscus Junius, have suggested the kingdoms are inferior in that they become successively or progressively harsher on the people of God, the Jews, okay? The only problem with that is there's nothing in the text that says that sort of speculative, and in many ways, it's very debatable from a historical perspective, okay? That would really make the fourth kingdom to be the worst, um, but I don't know that we can make the case that was the worst and the most harsh on the Jews. Others have argued that it's because Babylon had such a peaceful estate, and they kind of go down and become more warlike, and there's more political intrigue and violence and division Again, an issue with that is historical fact. Whatever peace Babylon had, it was fairly short-lived. The Neo-Babylonian Empire didn't even really go past 100 years before it was overthrown, and so it was very short compared to other empires that came after it that had much more peace. Others, I think Calvin is of this mind, suggest that it is a moral decay. The nations become increasingly darker and pagan in terms of morality. I guess there's a possibility with that. But again, I don't know that necessarily the Persians were godlier than the Babylonians or the Greeks more than the Persians. It seems a bit speculative to me. Well, I for myself, if you were to ask my opinion, again, this is with an open hand, I think probably the best option is one that is grounded in the dream itself. And that is that the kingdoms devolve in terms of unity and cohesion. And we see this really with the last kingdom. Its weakness is explained in this way, as kind of the final form of weakness. And perhaps that informs us how we should see the other inferiorities kind of as they go on. We'll look at that in a moment, okay? The second thing to note here is the other kingdoms that are mentioned. The first is Babylon, but then there are three more which compose the statue. So which are they? Well, the second and the third are pretty easy to identify. These aren't really hotly debated today. Um, they, They really stand out, especially from later prophecies in Daniel. I would say that the second is the Medo Persian Empire. The Medo Persian Empire, other at other times called the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were two different people groups. They kind of hailed from modern-day Iran to the north of Babylon, and yet they joined forces to overthrow Babylon, and they established their kind of unified kingdom. This is the kingdom that is ruling when the book of Esther takes place, for example. Esther is married to, uh, the, the Bible says, Ahasuerus, which is probably a transliteration of either Xerxes or Artaxerxes. Also, Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah starts off, he's a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who ruled over the Medes and the Persians. So I think they're the second kingdom. Next, I would argue that the abdomen and the thighs of bronze are the empire slash empires of the Greeks that was established by Alexander the Great and his successors. Technically, Alexander had his own vast empire, which stretched from Greece all the way to modern-day Afghanistan and even India. A 
lot of people don't know this, but for hundreds of years, there were Greek cities basically in Afghanistan, kind of around modern-day Kabul. There were Greek city-states. You think Greeks there? Yeah, for hundreds of years, there were. Um, after Alexander died, as vast as his empire was, because he did not have an heir, his kingdom was divided up by his generals. These generals are often referred to in history, even in English, as the diadochi, or in, in Greek, diadochoi, which means the successors. There were many of them, but the most common ones, you may have even heard some of their names. For example, there was Ptolemy. Ptolemy had control of Egypt. He established a dynasty there. Cleopatra, guess what? She was not Egyptian. She was a Greek princess. Alexander the Great's sister was called Cleopatra. It's a Greek name. She is from the house of Ptolemy. There was Antigonus, and the really important one, which we will focus on a bit later, is Seleucus. Seleucus founded the Seleucid Empire, and from him came Antiochus Epiphanes, who dealt with the Maccabean Revolt. That revolt was the Jews rebelling against the Seleucid Empire. Of all the the successor states to Alexander, I think the Seleucids uh, were really the greatest, okay? I would take all of that from Alexander on down, everything Greek, okay? I would take that to be the bronze abdomen and the thighs, all right? Moving on, verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. All right, well, what exactly are we talking about here? Well, here with the fourth kingdom, this is by far the most disputed of the kingdoms. Uh, The second and the third are pretty well agreed on. This one is quite disputed, and it has been even out throughout church history. Most traditionally, I would say it's taken as the Roman Empire, which is how I take it. Uh, But some take it as the Greek Seleucid Empire, which, as I said, was very much an empire in its own right. Even my favorite guy, Andrew Willett, he takes this not to be the Romans, but to be the Seleucid Empire or sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the Syrian Empire as well. To be quite honest with you, I think both views have merits, and each has some difficulties. With the view that this is the Roman Empire, that makes most sense of the fact that the stone which is cut from the mountain hits the feet, and if you take the stone to be principally Christ, as I do, it makes sense that that fourth kingdom would be Rome, since that's when Christ arrived. They are the governors of the land that he arrives in. If you take it, on the other hand, to be the Seleucids, 
We won't see this now, but that fits a little bit better with prophecies later, particularly in chapter 7. I couldn't for the life of me understand why Andrew Willett thought that this was the, the Seleucid Empire. And then I got to chapter 7, and I was like, oh, okay, I, I see why you're saying that. Okay, So there, there are uh, good men on all sides. It's not cut and dry. At the end of the day, you can still make sense of it. Um, I, for now at least, am taking it as Rome. Okay? What are we to make, however, of the fact that it is mingled with iron and clay? Daniel interprets this as a mingling of strength and weakness. What are we to, uh, what are we to understand this as? This gets back to the question of the inferiority, I think, of each successive kingdom. And as I said earlier, one option is that the kingdoms become increasingly less unified and cohesive with one another. And we see this, that this is how the fourth kingdom is really described. It's described in verse 41 as a divided kingdom. And later on in verse 43, it says, And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. The phrase, the language of combining with one another in the seed of men could mean several things, each of which I think is legitimate. Probably the most common interpretation is that this is referring to intermarriage, but probably not just intermarriage in a broader sense between two people groups, but probably between nobility and monarchs trying to forge political alliances. That's often what you would do in, in the ancient world to unite two kingdoms, um, make sure you both have the same grandchildren, right? That's how you kind of make political alliances. It's suggested that that's what's happening here. However, it's ultimately not bringing cohesion. It could also mean the forced relocation of people groups and resettling them and trying to absorb them, very much as the Babylonians did with the Jews. Part of the argument for this is that in Jeremiah, God talks about resettling the land after the exile, and he speaks of sowing the land with the seed of men and beasts. Okay, And so it's argued perhaps this is an attempt to incorporate more and more peoples forcefully, but again, an attempt which does not actually bring true cohesion, and they will not adhere to one another, as the text says. Okay? Let me take a drink here. Well, all of this, getting to point number one, these four kingdoms, their valuable metals show us the fleshly, temporal wisdom and glory and power of the kingdoms of men. It is significant that the statue is in the shape of a man. It could have been the shape of many other things. It could have been the shape of a beast, as you see later on in other prophecies. It could have simply been a pillar, and you could still have, you know, uh, the top part of it being of gold and silver and bronze, you could still do that, and yet it is in the shape of man because these are the kingdoms of man. As it is in the shape of man, I would say it tells us a lot about these kingdoms. They are fleshly. They are of mortal flesh. We see this in several ways in this chapter. First, man is said uh, earlier in the chapter to be mortal flesh. The wise men complained to the king 
There is no one who could declare it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Well, that's exactly what we see with every successive kingdom. They are indeed mortal flesh. One comes, they kind of grow old and tired. Another comes and dominates them. They grow old and tired. Another comes and dominates them, so on and so forth. This is supported fact that they are mortal flesh, by the fact that the fifth kingdom, which we'll look at in a minute, particularly the stone, is said to be cut without hands. You ever seen that phrase in scripture, cut without hands or made without hands? That phrase is used all throughout scripture to mean that something is a spiritual work in contrast to a work of the flesh. It is of divine origin And therefore, it is often eternal. It does not perish. For example, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Eternal in the heavens. We're speaking of the flesh of Christ. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.11, says that his flesh was the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. See that? Not made with hands, that is to say, he says, not of this creation. Now, that does not mean that Christ's flesh was not truly human flesh. The author of Hebrews goes well out of his way to establish that fact. What it does mean is that the incarnation was not a work of man, but a work of God and the Spirit. It was not brought about by the coming together of husband and wife. As the angel says, the Holy Spirit shall come upon Mary, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow her. Now that is the fifth kingdom. It begins with a stone cut without hands. But I think that here we are to infer by contrast that these kingdoms of men are indeed the works of men's hands, so to speak. They are of the flesh. They are temporal. They fade and perish. Lastly, we see that these kingdoms of men are of the flesh because their glory and their beauty and their power and their wisdom is of the flesh. They do indeed have a beauty and a glory. Remember, the statue is said to be large and of what? Extraordinary splendor. It's beautiful to behold. When Satan is tempting our Lord, we're told that he took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. They have a glory, but it's a glory of the flesh. And therefore, it is a glory that fades and that is perishable. I think we see this in the materials that this statue is made of. These precious materials or strong materials are referred to again and again throughout Scripture to denote the beauty and glory of the flesh on the one hand, but ultimately their subjection to corruption, their mortality. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18. He says, We were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. He exhorts the ladies, the Christian women in chapter 3, to not let their adornment be merely external, 
the braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. These kingdoms are not of the spirit, however, they are of the flesh, and so their glory is the glory of the flesh. It is indeed a glory of a sort, but it is a glory that fades and perishes over time. One last thing here before we move on to the fifth kingdom, uh, and again, I was not able to uh, confirm this in any other commentary. So when only Pastor Ryan thinks something and no one else says it, just a huge chunk of salt, okay? Uh, You can take that with you. But one thing I do wonder is if also we see something of the fact that we become like what we worship. It's interesting to me that these kingdoms are made of perishable gold and silver, and they are the works of men's hands, and yet again and again throughout Scripture, that's the language that describes idolatry. Listen, for example, to uh, Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Hmm. How fitting then that just as God, uh, man makes gods out of gold and silver with his hands, so also the kingdoms of, kingdoms of men are like them. They are perishable. It's also interesting, too, the word here uh, for statue, it's the same word really used more commonly for an idol. Uh, it's, it's the word for an image. I couldn't find this. Uh, no one else confirmed this. They said, this is not an, an idol, it's a statue. Yeah, but it's almost overwhelmingly everywhere else it means an idol. I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps that's hinting at the idolatrous nature of the worship of the kingdoms of men. Okay, just just a thought. Well, continuing on in verse 44 with the fifth kingdom, Daniel says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. In that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. First, let me point out to you what I believe is point number two, the apparent, apparent folly and weakness of the kingdom of Yahweh from the perspective of the flesh. The apparent folly and weakness of the kingdom of Yahweh from the perspective of the flesh. And what I mean by that it is, is that it is not truly uh, foolish, it is not truly weak, but if you only look with the eyes of the flesh, it appears to be so. I take this primarily from the fact that although the kingdoms of men are made either of precious metals or strong metals, the kingdom of the Lord starts out as a stone. 
It's just a rock. Don't get me wrong. You can do things with rocks, right? They're not useless, but they do not have the beauty and the glimmer of gold and silver, nor the strength of bronze and iron. We read, for example, in 1 Kings 10, there was so much silver in Solomon's kingdom, it was, quote, not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. And they explain why. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. Rocks are everywhere. If you need rocks, I can get rocks for you in five seconds. Just let me go. They're right outside the door as soon as you walk. They are not shiny. They are not beautiful. No one gets a nice stone of granite and takes it to a jeweler to cut. No girl is saying, I... I'd like a princess cut granite for my my engagement ring. No one's doing anything like that. Rocks are nice, but they're not precious. They're not strong and endurable, at at least not like iron is. We typically, on the other hand, speak of unadvanced civilizations as having what kind of technology? Stone Age technology. They have Stone Age weapons, Stone Age tools, and historically speaking, when Stone Age peoples encounter bronze or Iron Age peoples, it does not go very well for Stone Age people. That's why in verse 40 it says that iron crushes and shatters all things, even stone. I would say from this, the fact that the kingdom starts out as a mere stone without the beauty and value of gold and silver, nor the strength of bronze and iron, From the perspective of the flesh, we would say, you you are right. (laughs) It has an apparent folly and weakness. If all you are doing is looking with your eyes according to fleshly standards of the world, you are indeed correct. Our Lord Jesus, who is principally the stone, is born in a manger, a smelly animal stall, barely uh, with enough shelter to protect you. Protects animals, but humans typically want more protection than animals can get. That's where our Lord was born. He was born to parents so poor, they could only afford to give the cheapest offering when they dedicated him at the temple. He hailed from a region so insignificant, even his own followers said, can anything good come from a place like that? I like to tease my wife that where she's from in the desert is a place like that. Perhaps you know people. We all make fun of certain places like that. That's where our Lord was from. He himself was not clothed in gold and fine linens. He was clothed simply as a poor man, and there was nothing in him that looked beautiful or glorious. Isaiah tells us he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He did not dwell in the great palace of Babylon as Nebuchadnezzar did. Perhaps you've heard, this is a wonder of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar reigned in splendor. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He was an itinerant minister, dependent on on the gifts of, of his followers, He did not tickle the ears of the crowds with rousing political speeches and the wisdom of the world. Rather, he spoke in puzzling parables, 
precisely so that seeing they would not see and hearing they would not hear. Who does that? He did not come in shining armor with a sword in his hand, mounted proudly upon a war horse. He came humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He was not like Alexander, surrounded by generals trained in military strategy, loyally following him headlong as he rides his horse into battle. His closest followers all abandoned him at the first glint of a sword. The only one who ever swung a sword missed and only cut off an ear. His greatest victory was not wrought by killing his enemies. He did not have the kind of victory that Nebuchadnezzar did over Egypt at Carchemish. He did not stand victoriously as Alexander did over uh, the battlefield of Galgamela. The greatest victory of our Lord was wrought by his own death at the hand of his foes. Indeed, when John the Baptist saw him, he didn't say, Behold the Lion of Judah who comes to conquer. Behold the Lamb of God. Does a lamb inspire you to charge with a sword into battle? Indeed, he was put to death by soldiers of the fourth kingdom. He was condemned to death by Pontius Pilate, a governor of the fourth kingdom. Judging by that alone, (laughs) it seems like the kingdom of men crushed the stone rather than the other way around. If that's How you look at it, with just the eyes of the flesh, it seems quite the other way around, that the kingdom of iron crushed the stone. Yet, brothers and sisters, that's only from the perspective of the flesh. From the perspective of the spirit, we see here the insurpassable spiritual power, wisdom, and glory of Yahweh's king, his kingdom, and his people. Brings us to point number three, the spiritual wisdom and power of Yahweh's kingdom. Christ, though he came in appearance as a stone, yet was more valuable than all the gold and silver or whatever precious metal you could ever think of combined. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. In fact, it is particularly the divinity of Christ and the eternal generation of the Son of God which Andrew Willett draws out from the fact that the stone is cut from the mountain. He quotes Ambrose, who says, The mountain cut of the mountain without hands, that is the Son of the Father without any creation. Whatever glory or beauty you could find in gold or silver or precious gems, these all merely point to the beauty and glory fail to capture it. If you have eyes of faith, you didn't just see a stone, however. With eyes of faith, you could say, like John, we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And while his kingdom and his victory was not powerful according to the flesh, That was precisely its power because it was spiritual and not fleshly. It could deal a a blow that no human sword or chariot or bow could ever land. No kingdom could ever conquer the things that that Christ conquered. Andrew Willett says, 
This scripture evidently describeth the spiritual kingdom of Christ. In this world, ruling and governing the hearts of his servants by grace and propagating his truth and gospel over all the world, exercising his power upon the enemies of his church, which kingdom shall be perfected in his everlasting glory of this eternal and ever-during kingdom. The prophet Isaiah says, the increase of his government and peace shall have no end. Make no mistake, Christian. Christ crushes his enemies. They turn to chaff that are blown away in the wind, but not according to the flesh. Christ crushed that which no other kingdom could ever crush, rather that which every kingdom and every king and every man was always enslaved to, the lusts and passions of their sin. He destroyed that which every human and king feared, death, and which took over every one of them. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, all of his successors, all of the emperors of Rome, all the way on down through all the great leaders, none of them escaped the clutches of death. And lastly, Christ defeated the one who is, in many ways, the true ruler of the world, the one who used these men as his mere playthings, Satan. All these things, sin, death, and Satan, Christ shattered, but not according to the flesh. His kingdom was not established by force of arms, nor is it maintained as such. But again, that's what makes it powerful, brothers and sisters. Our brother Vishal read earlier for us from Zechariah chapter 9. And I've quoted again from verse 9. It says, Christ comes humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Donkeys were not known as the war horses of the ancient world. They were known as the donkeys of the ancient world, just as they are today. Okay? No one ever charged into battle on a donkey, let alone the foal of a donkey, a little tiny donkey. That's what it's getting at when it talks about that in that verse. I wonder if you read and, and, and grasped the verse that follows that. The following verse says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. The chariot was the tank of the ancient world. And the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. By who? The guy on the donkey? Yeah, because his power is spiritual. His weapons are spiritual and his victory is spiritual, not wrought by the flesh. Puritan William Pemble says, No engine of war whatsoever shall be of use in the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Nor were the Jews to think, as they vainly did, that under the Messiah they should become emperors of the world and bring all nations under subjection of the Jewish crown by power of their victorious arms. No. The chariot, the horse, the bow... All earthly weapons should be of no force to preserve or enlarge Christ's spiritual empire over men's hearts and consciences. Does that make it weak? It makes it strong. That's why it marches forward, brothers and sisters. 
That's why it's found in more places than the greatest empires of men have ever been found. It's on every single continent. Whenever we read verses that say, to the uttermost part of the world, you know what I think of? There's an island called Tristan de Cunha. It's said to be one of the most remote places in the world. Look it up on Google Earth. It's like really hard to get there. And it's right in between Africa and South America. And there are churches, and hopefully there are believers there. The gospel has gone to the remotest parts of the world, and it still goes on, though it's not led by a man on a war horse or a chariot or with a bow. That's its power, brothers and sisters. We see this as a common theme in Scripture, that the kingdom has humble beginnings, but then spreads to fill the whole earth. Christ says the kingdom of heaven is like what? A mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. It becomes greater than all the other trees. One author says, I would encourage you to take this to heart. Christ doth encourage his disciples, lest being offended at the base and simple beginning of the gospel, they should draw back in despair. We see how proudly profane men despise and deride the gospel because it is brought unto them by poor ministers, rude in comparison to those which are of noble birth. And because not all men receive the gospel, but only a few disciples, even the basest of the common people. And yet the flock of Christ, in short time, spread to the uttermost parts of the earth and excelled all the kingdoms of the world. Let us learn, therefore, if the appearance of the kingdom of Christ be contemptible and base to our fleshly eyes, to lift up our minds to the inestimable and exceeding power of God. I like this. As for the proud, let them grin like dogs until such time as the Lord astonish and amaze them with that which they looked not for. He will not come back as a stone, brothers and sisters. He will come back in his full glory. Whatever terror, whatever splendor this image had is nothing compared to the glory and power and splendor of Jesus Christ when he comes back on the clouds with his saints. Let's wrap up our passage and we'll close with some application. Picking up in verse 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, and did homage to Daniel, and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. In closing with some application, let me ask each and every one of you here today, to which kingdom do you belong? 
to which of these, we could really say two kingdoms, the kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? Do you only have citizenship in the kingdom of man or do you have citizenship in both? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, namely the church, just because you are here today at a gathering of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven does not mean you have citizenship just by being here today. If you are not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are a citizen of the kingdom of men only. In fact, you are truly just a slave of the dominion of Satan, who is the true ruler of the world. If that is you here today, then just as gold and silver perish, and just as all those kings and kingdoms with all their glory perished, you too will perish one day, and there will be no more chance to enter into the kingdom, because you are a citizen of a mortal, temporal kingdom. And you, therefore, will be mortal and subject to death if you remain only a citizen of that kingdom. Good news is that the gates of the kingdom of heaven are wide open today. And all, anyone, no matter who they are, no matter how poor they are, no matter how foolish, no matter how young they are, may enter into the kingdom. That same stone is a savior of those who belong to the other kingdom. As God says in Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed. Those who don't, their disappointment will be incomprehensible. When all the glory and beauty and power of the flesh is gone, how great shall their disappointment be? For those who believe, they shall never be disappointed. Christ shall give you, if you enter today by faith, an imperishable inheritance that he gives to all those who enter into his kingdom. As Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The gates are open this moment. You may come in now. Just believe and receive this gift. For those of you who are already citizens of this fifth kingdom, I encourage you, as the one commentator said, to lift your eyes beyond what you can merely see with the flesh. As we look upon the appearance of things, it is often very discouraging, the world around us, is it not? We see, perhaps, the church losing ground in many ways becoming a smaller and smaller minority. Yes, but widen your gaze. If the church loses ground in one place, it gains it in three others. The kingdom, the mountain is growing as we speak. 
Perhaps your heart is too set on another kingdom. I confess, this last 4th of July was kind of sad to me. I didn't really celebrate. And I used to love the 4th of July because my nation is very, very different now. And it's very, very pagan and evil. The kingdom that I, I grew up listening to. Oh man, when you go to the rodeo here and the cowboy goes around with the flag and they sing, I'm proud to be an American. Man, 10 years ago, I would have been choked up. Nowadays, the announcer says, let's take off our hats and pray to God. And I go, this is a godless nation. I don't know what we're praying to. But if you remember, keep your eyes upon the fifth kingdom. Well, brothers and sisters, you'll never be disappointed. It grows upward and upward and upward, up into the highest heavens, a mountain to fill the whole earth. Don't be disappointed by keeping your heart and your eyes on the kingdoms of this world. Lastly, do not lay up treasures in this world, brothers and sisters, nor be anxious for the things of this world. It's all passing. Christ says, why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not toil nor spin. Yet I say that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Those are the worries of the kingdoms of men. They are occupied with those kingdoms. So many of their wars of conquest were meant to find solutions to those problems. You belong to the fifth kingdom. So he says, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Do not lay up treasure in this world, brothers and sisters, but lay up treasure in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the beautiful kingdom of light of your Son. Father, help us to live in light of that kingdom. Help us to not walk according to the flesh, to not wage war according to the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit. We pray for all here today who have not yet been gathered into your kingdom, that today, this very moment, would be the, the hour of salvation when they would be brought in, Lord, when you would bestow upon them the inheritance of sons and daughters, an imperishable inheritance. And I pray for your people, Lord, we, we, in and of ourselves, Lord, are not those who crush and destroy all others. And yet, Lord, by your power, you make us to be such. Oh, Father, would you help us to lean on you and your power this week. In the name of Christ, we pray.